good morning, everybody. Good morning, and uh, happy Christmas to you all. Uh, yeah, yes, it is uh, Christmas Eve, and uh, over the last few weeks, many of us have been busy putting up our Christmas trees, right? Am I right? Yeah? Yeah, well, I've got to say that uh, in the months leading up to Christmas, I have actually been busy working on a different kind of tree. Uh, my family tree. Yeah, my family tree. It's become something of a hobby for me. And I have to say, I have found the whole process really fascinating, uh, especially on my mother's side. Now, my mum's maiden name is Hopkins. And uh, I've known for the longest time uh, that the Hopkins first came to Australia from England five generations ago as our free settlers. Uh, they were sheep farmers and uh, fine, upstanding citizens, they were. Pillars, pillars of the community. In fact, I, I don't mean to gloat, okay? I don't mean to gloat. Uh, but the day after their ship, the Rattler, arrived here in Sydney, the Empire newspaper had this to say about my family. The Rattler has also brought out a bunch of government emigrants as fine and healthy a lot as have ever arrived here. There you go. My forebears. <laughs> but then the other branches of my mum's side have always been, well, shrouded in mystery. And so this year I decided to do some research. And that's when I discovered people like my great, great, great grandfather, Thomas Garland. Uh, let me tell you a bit about him. Uh, Thomas was born in London in 1812, and as a 17-year-old, he got himself a job as a butler in the home of one Madame Lucia Elizabeth Vestris, a, a famous actress and opera singer. Then on the 27th of April, 1830, uh, Thomas rode Madame Vestris in her carriage to the Drury Lane Theatre, where he was supposed to come back and pick her up later that afternoon. But instead... After dropping her off, uh, Thomas went back to Madame Vestris's house and, well, stole money and jewellery to the value of about $50,000 in today's terms. Well, it wasn't long before Thomas was located uh, <laughs> down at the pub and uh, he was arrested and uh, later tried at the Old Bailey Courthouse where he was given the death penalty. A sentence which I am very glad to say uh, was uh, downgraded uh, to transportation for life, probably on account of his young age. And so Thomas arrived here in Australia as a convict in 1831. Upon arrival, uh, he was assigned to assist the Reverend Charles Wilton, who was the chaplain at the Parramatta Orphanage for Girls. <laughs> What were they thinking? What were they thinking? Because unfortunately, it was at the orphanage that Thomas got one of the other teenage servants pregnant, uh, a girl by the name of Anne Jones, um, <laughs> whom I suspect looked a little bit younger than this <laughs> at the time. Okay. Well, they got married and they had a little boy, but it seems that marriage didn't exactly reform Thomas. Uh, because shortly afterwards, uh, he was apprehended for disorderly conduct and given 50 lashes. In 1848, Thomas received a conditional pardon, and uh, he and Anne lived up in the Hunter region, uh, where Thomas spent his days working as, yes, you guessed it, a butler, and, as legend has it, using his spare time to harbour bushrangers. Well, well... 
it was uh, certainly a revelation uh, just to discover all this about my Garland forebears. Uh, a bit different to the fine, upstanding Hopkins side of the family, that's for sure. Uh, but then Thomas Garland wasn't the only surprise I found. Uh, in fact, as it turns out, at least four of my ancestors uh, in those mysterious branches uh, came to Australia as convicts. Who knew? Though I dare say there are probably a few people here today thinking to themselves, no surprises there. <laughs> but hey, hey, if you think that my family tree is rather shady, then you should know that I am actually in very good company. Because have you ever considered Jesus' family tree? That's what I want us to look at together today. Jesus' family tree. And of course, Jesus was born on the first Christmas, and so I guess we could call this talk Jesus' family Christmas tree. Okay. Now, if you don't already have a Bible open in front of you at Matthew chapter 1, I encourage you to grab one now. Turn with me there. It's page 1500 of the church Bibles. If you don't have one, it's okay. The, the, the verses will also come up on the screen for you today. Special Christmas gift to you. Uh, it's Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Now, look with me at how Ma Matthew starts his gospel. He writes... This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. And so, yes, what we have here is Jesus' family tree, or at least one branch of it. And if you reckon my family tree has a few blemished apples, well, then just take a look at Jesus's. Uh, let's start in verse 2, shall we? Verse 2, uh, with Abraham. Yes, Abraham, the great father of faith. Well, except for when he knowingly put his wife Sarah in harm's way uh, just to protect his own skin and uh, not on just one occasion either, but twice. Shocking. Then there in the same verse, there's Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Uh, Jacob who cheated his older brother Esau out of his inheritance. Appalling. Then in verse 3, there's Judah and Tamar. Now, not only did Judah sell his brother Joseph as a slave to foreigners, uh, breaking his father's heart. He also slept with a woman he thought was a prostitute, only to, to discover later it had actually been his widowed daughter-in-law, Tamar, in disguise because she was desperate for a child. Scandalous. Then in verse 5, there's Rahab, who before coming to faith in God was an actual prostitute and uh, ran a brothel. Uh, then in verse 6, there's the great King David, who uh, in one of his less than great moments got another man's wife pregnant, then tried to cover it up by having the woman's husband murdered so he could marry her. Dreadful. Then still in verse 6, there's Solomon, whose heart turned to follow the false gods of his foreign wives despite all God's kindness to him. In verse 7, there's Rehoboam, whose arrogance and harsh leadership led to civil war and the kingdom of Israel being ripped in two. Also in verse 7, there's Abijah, a king who we're told did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And last but not least, there's Ahaz in verse 9 and Manasseh in verse 10, both of whom burned their own children as sacrifices to false gods. Deplorable. Okay, you get the point, don't you? There are a lot of dodgy people in Jesus' family tree. 
In fact, his family tree makes mine look like a cherry tree in full bloom, really. <laughs> and yet, and yet, this, this is how Matthew has chosen to kick off his gospel. Surprising, don't you think? Hey, well, let me tell you all about Jesus and why he is so wonderful. Well, for starters, his family was really, really messed up. Of course, not not that all Jesus' ancestors are renowned for bad behaviour, like, for example, Boaz and Ruth in verse 5, who are remembered for their loyalty and generosity. Uh, And then there's uh, Zerubbabel in verse 13, who helped rebuild the temple in Jerusalem after the Babylonians destroyed it. These seem like good guys, uh, fine, upstanding citizens. Uh, Perhaps their surname was Hopkins. (laughs) Zerubbabel Hopkins. (laughs) Then, of course, there's Mary and Joseph in verse 16, remembered for their special role as Jesus' parents and for their strong trust in God. And then I guess in addition to all of these, there are also a whole lot of other people listed here about whom we know nothing at all. Uh, They're historical nobodies, as it were. So what do you reckon? Why would Matthew choose to begin his gospel this way? With Jesus' warts and all family tree. Well, I don't think it's just to give us a genealogical lesson you know, like a kind of ancient Hebrew version of Ancestry.com. Now, it's obvious that Matthew is trying to make a point here. And I reckon the key is found at the end of this genealogy, in verse 17. You read with me, verse 17, where it says, Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. You see, Matthew has deliberately organised Jesus' family tree into three groups of 14 generations. From Abraham to David, David to the exile, and the exile to Jesus. And he's done that on purpose, to make a point. So what's the point? Well, to understand what's going on, we need to keep in mind that Matthew was writing to Jews who were holding on to promises God had made to their ancestors. In particular, around 2000 BC, God promised Abraham that through his family, people from all nations of the earth would be blessed. Then, a thousand years later, one of Abraham's descendants, David, became king of Israel, and God promised David that one of his descendants would be a king forever. And so I guess you could summarise God's promises to Abraham and David as, as an eternal kingdom of blessing for people of every nation. An eternal kingdom of peace and joy for people in Israel and China, and Uganda, and Pakistan, and Scotland, and Mexico, and even here in Australia. And obviously that makes these promises pretty special. 
But then, at the end of the second group of 14 generations, Matthew highlights an event called the Exile to Babylon, which refers to a time around 600 BC when the Jews were invaded and taken captive. It was a terrible time in Israel's history where they lost the blessings of God, their their land, their their temple, their, their king, and were taken off to Babylon as slaves for 70 years. But significantly, the Babylonians weren't the ones ultimately responsible for the exile. Rather, the Bible tells us that it was God. You see, this exile was God's judgment on the Israelites for their sin, for their failure to obey and worship God as they ought. God had sent prophet after prophet to warn them, but they refused to repent. And so in the end, God cast them out of their land and withdrew his blessings for a time. And so do you see, do you see, in laying out his genealogy in this way, Matthew is making the point that sin is what keeps people out of God's eternal kingdom of blessing and brings them under his judgment instead. In fact, the Bible says that the penalty for sin is death. Not just physical death, though that is part of it, but spiritual death too. Eternal separation from God. Eternal exile, if you like which suddenly makes all this very personal indeed. Because, you know, as I look at my own family tree, I can't help but notice something very significant. The fact is, if I, if I go back just one generation before me, I can see that all my ancestors who came before have one thing in common. Can you guess what it is? Can you guess? No? That's right. They're all dead. (laughs) All of them. Each and every one. The good ones. The bad ones. And everyone in between. The notorious. The noble. The nobodies. They're all dead. And that's because they were all sinners under the judgment of God. And that's a very sobering thought. Because the truth is, whether I like it or not, that dotted line there is relentlessly headed my way. The fact is, death is coming to me too. I'm sure it might be another 30 years you know, before it arrives. Well, then again, I, I might choke on a prawn at Christmas lunch tomorrow. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know when death will come my way, but I do know it's coming. And that's because I too am a sinner deserving the judgment of God. We all are, even the very best of us. Friends, I think if we're honest with ourselves, We've all said and done things we regret. We've all 
hurt other people or, or put ourselves first. Times we've, we've failed to obey and honour God as we should. We've all sinned, no matter how good we think we are. In fact, in the eyes of the perfect God, we're nowhere near perfect. And so we're all deserving of his judgment, every one of us. And that is a terrible, terrible thought. Merry Christmas. <laughs> but Matthew is not writing his gospel to just give us the bad news. No, 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 no. In fact, the very word gospel means good news. And Matthew's good news for us is this. In God's great love, he has graciously provided a solution to this problem of sin. And that solution is Jesus, the Messiah, God's rescuing king. It's the good news that Matthew spells out for us in the second part of this chapter, which we had read for us a little earlier. Do you remember uh, where Joseph discovers that his fiancée, Mary, is pregnant? And so he naturally thinks that she's been with another guy and plans to break off the engagement. Uh, but before he does... An angel of God appears to him in a dream and says the most extraordinary thing he says. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You see, the baby in Mary had been miraculously conceived. He was the son of God himself. Just think about that. Jesus, though he had existed from all eternity, 2,000 years ago, he put on flesh and blood and became one of us, entering into humanity's family tree. And why? To save his people from their sins. Whoever they are, whatever they've done, he came to save us all. To do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Kind of reminds me of those 41 Indian workers a few weeks back uh, who were stuck 150 metres underground in a, in a collapsed tunnel. Uh, Trapped for 17 days. Did you hear about it? You heard about it? Now, where did their rescue come from? Well, it certainly didn't come from any of the 41 guys stuck underground. Now, left to rescue themselves, they would have all died for sure. No, their rescue had to come from above. From, from those outside of their predicament. It had to come from people who weren't trapped like they were. And when that rescue finally came, oh, what elation, what joy. Well, friends, on our own, we too are stuck. Stuck in our sin and helpless to free ourselves. And that's exactly why Jesus came into our world to rescue us. No wonder Joseph was told to call him Jesus, which means God saves, because Jesus is God's salvation plan.
See, friends, at Christmas we remember that Jesus was born as a baby. But that's not the end of the story. Three three decades later, Jesus was wrongly convicted and executed on a Roman cross. But this was always God's plan. The way he would keep his promises to Abraham and David. You see, on the cross, though completely innocent, Jesus bore the shame and judgment we deserve for our sins. He died in our place as our substitute. But the story doesn't end there. Three days later, Jesus rose to life again, proving beyond doubt that he had overcome sin and death once and for all. And now, Jesus offers forgiveness and a new and eternal life to all who will trust him to save them and be their king. But the story doesn't end there either. Before he returned to heaven, Jesus promised that one day he would come again to establish his eternal kingdom of blessing once and for all. A kingdom without sin and death. A kingdom of peace and joy in the loving presence of God forever. Where his promises to Abraham and David will be fully and finally fulfilled. And that, friends, is very, very good news indeed. In fact, it's the best news ever. And so what can we learn from Matthew's genealogy of Jesus? Well, I reckon there are two really important lessons for us here. The first is this. There is no one so good they don't need Jesus to save them. Now, friends, as we've seen today, we're all sinners, all of us, even Ruth and Boaz, even Mary and Joseph, even the fine upstanding Hopkinses, Sure, it might be a bit more obvious in the Thomas Garlands of this world. In the same way, some of those Indian workers might have been a bit dirtier than the others. But they were all in need of the same rescue. And so are we. So praise God, that's what he's offering us this Christmas. Friend, don't be mistaken. It doesn't matter how good you might be. God still takes your sin very seriously. Your upcoming death is proof of that. So whatever you do, please don't rely on your own goodness to make yourself right with God. You need to rely on Jesus for rescue. Because there is no one so good They don't need Jesus to save them. That's the first lesson. And the second is this. There is no one so bad, they are beyond his salvation. You know, every now and then I'll invite someone to church and they'll say to me, oh, I could never go there. If if I walked in, the roof would cave in on me. They reckon God would never accept someone like them. Well, friend, obviously you haven't stayed away today for that reason, and that's wonderful. But I can't help but wonder if there are people here today who sometimes doubt 
whether God could ever forgive them. Perhaps you feel a deep sense of shame for something you've done or something that has been done to you. Perhaps you have your own story full of secrets, maybe a a sexual sin, perhaps the, the hypocrisy of being one thing in public but quite another behind closed doors. Perhaps you struggle with lying or anger or greed or lust or addiction. Well, if so, then friend, know this. You're in good company. And by good company, I mean the company of fellow sinners. We are all broken. So welcome to the family. And I hope you can see that no matter what you've done or failed to do or who you've been or failed to be, with Jesus there is always the offer of forgiveness and hope and a place in his eternal kingdom of blessing. Jesus is your solution. Because as we've seen today on that first Christmas, he came for us all. He came for the Hopkinses. He came for the Garlands. He came for the Esdales. And he came for the Wongs and the Kims and the Chans and the Tans and the Lees and the, insert your surname here. Yes, friend, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, came for you. And now he invites you to come just as you are to him. Acknowledging your need for him and in faith receiving the forgiveness and peace that's found in him alone. Friend, is that what you want to do today? Well, in a moment, I'll lead us in a prayer where you can tell God just that, if you wish. But before I do, it's Christmas. So I thought we might do something a little bit different today. I think most of us would be well aware of that old, famous Christmas carol, O Come All Ye Faithful. Uh, Well, I recently came across a modern Christmas carol called O Come All You Unfaithful. And... uh, Given today's message, I thought it really hit the mark. So uh, let's listen to this carol together now, and then when it's done, I'll come back and I'll lead us in prayer. is born 
to come to Jesus now, then I invite you to join along with me in this prayer, just praying these words to God in the silence of your own heart. Let's pray. Oh, dear Jesus, I come to you now in prayer to humbly confess that I am a sinner, deserving of your judgment, and to say that I'm truly sorry. Thank you for your great love that led you to come into this world to become one of us and to ultimately bear our shame and punishment on the cross. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done. Jesus, I ask you now to please take away my sin. Please forgive me and give me a place in your eternal kingdom. Thank you for the peace and joy I can have this Christmas, knowing that I am forever yours. Amen.